So we're carrying on, as you see in our study through Acts, and, and this, this chapter and the establishing of the church in Ephesus, um, it, it's so instructional for us, and I want to look at it today. There, there's so many different ways that we could look at this passage, or so many different aspects that we could focus in on, but I, I want to kind of take a, a more of a general type of a look at it. And I want, I want us to see it as a, uh, as, as kind of a model for what God intends a church to be in a community. So here, as we read over these verses, we, we see this is really the, the uh, account of the establishing of the Ephesian church. And, you know, even when we say Ephesus or Ephesians, um, you know, we, we have been Christians for a while. That just, you know, suddenly uh, rings a bell because, of course, we have uh, the uh, epistle to the Ephesians. Uh, we have one of the letters to the seven churches that was written to uh, the church in Ephesus. We, we see here from the story that uh, Paul is the founder of the church, but we know from other information in the New Testament that uh, Timothy had a major role and actually probably was uh, in the role of, of the pastor of the church in Ephesus at a period in time. And, and we even know from church history that John the Apostle uh, in his later years would be connected to the church in Ephesus. So uh, this, this is really, uh, as I said, I think it's just really a, a key text in, in looking at uh, what the church is to look like. So just quickly, as we've often done, just a little bit of background on uh, the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was the capital and port city of the Roman province of Asia. So, you know, as, as we read in there, that all who were in Asia heard the word of the Lord. So today, when we think of Asia, we're we're thinking of a place that's much different than uh, the place here. So, th so that, that region that we think of um, as Turkey today and part of the Middle East, you know, that, that would be considered even today by some as Asia Minor. But, but this was the province, the Roman province of Asia, and Ephesus was the, uh, the capital city. So uh, the city was on the western coast of what is now Turkey, and it was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire with a population of probably somewhere around 500,000 people, half a million people or so. So it was a, it was a very significant city at the time. Uh, the city was home to many idols, uh, the temples there, the most famous being that of Artemis, or as she's also called, uh, here later in the text, Diana. And Ephesus was a center of commerce, a center of idolatry, a center of sexual immorality, and it was a, a center of the occult, as we could even see in the passage that we read. So in other words, it was just like most major cities in the world today, a hard dark place filled with broken people. And it was into this kind of an environment 
that the apostles went over and over again. So, you know, we, we previously looked at the, uh, the church being established in Corinth, and we talked about the kind of just the, the social and moral conditions of Corinth. So, so all of these cities were, were very similar. They were given over to idolatry, uh, many of them, because, because Paul had sort of a habit, it wasn't exclusively like this, but he would go to the major population centers, and he would also go to the places where um, commerce took place because people were in and out of those places. So he wanted to capitalize on... Um, the population centers to get the gospel spread as far and wide as possible. So, so now Ephesus is the next stop, if you will, where here's another major hub where Paul understands that this would be an ideal place for uh, the church to be established. And obviously the Lord is uh, leading him to do this. So this is what they did. They went over and over again with the gospel of Jesus Christ to establish churches, which would then become outpost of the kingdom of God on earth. And that's really what I want to emphasize today. I want to talk about just this whole idea of, of the church being God's outpost in the world. Uh, Eugene Peterson referred to the local church as a colony of heaven in a country of death. C.S. Lewis expressed a similar idea when he said this, uh, enemy-occupied territory, that is what the world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say landed in disguise, and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. When you go to church, you are really listening in to a secret radio transmission from our friends. So that's what's happening today. There's a secret. <laughs> this is C.S. Lewis is writing this in his time, you know, when it was a radio transmission. Uh, he actually used the word wireless. Today, if we said wireless, we would think of wireless internet, right? Uh, but, but the picture that he's painting is, you know, here's, here's people behind enemy lines there to subvert uh, this kingdom of darkness, and as we come together, we're getting instruction from our friends, who are our friends, the Lord, and the, the heavenly message that he's giving to us. And so in, in both of those statements, the, uh, the church as a colony of heaven and a country of death, and then this statement from Lewis, th this is what we see. The church is God's outpost. It's his earthly base of operation, in other words. Now, there's a kingdom that's coming, and we know it will come in its fullness when Jesus returns to the earth. But in the meantime, the kingdom is uh, taking territory, not territory in the sense of land, but territory in the sense of uh, people. And that, that's really, when we talk about the advancement of the kingdom, we're talking about more and more people coming under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We're talking about more and more people uh, being brought into God's kingdom through the receiving of the gospel. And so here we see in the passage that we read, uh, and we see it in Paul's ministry and in the subsequent church that was established in Ephesus, 
uh, we see five things that mark the church as an outpost of God in the world. And those are the five things that I want to focus on for just a few minutes here today. So the church as an outpost of God is, number one, a place where believers can grow in their understanding of God's truth and experience his presence. Um, Look once again at verses one through six. Uh, And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. So, so we see right here from Paul's ministry, uh, what is Paul doing? He's teaching them uh, the truth. He's, he's helping them to understand uh, things that they were not yet um, understanding. And, and this is what the church is to be. The church as an outpost of God in the world, is a place where people can learn about God. But how do we learn about God? We learn about God through the revelation that God has given us of himself through the scriptures. So, you know, any church that sets aside the Bible or any church that just gives lip service to the Bible but doesn't really, you know, actually preach it and teach it and believe it is not really the church. Whatever it is, it is not the church. Because the church, as Paul would say to Timothy, is the pillar and the mainstay of the truth. And it's our um, calling to proclaim the truth, to promote the truth, to defend the truth, but to teach God's people. Now, I've mentioned this previously, but I think it bears saying again uh, there's an there's a epidemic of biblical illiteracy. Uh, of course, it's in the culture. It's blatant in the culture. But, but sadly, it is the condition of many churches as well. Because people have forgotten what the church is. It is, uh, it is that place. It's that one place where the knowledge of God is to be disseminated. You know, you think of the, of the university uh, you know, what is a university? A university is a place where all of this accumulated knowledge of man is disseminated. And, and then that's fine. Uh, but where's the place where the knowledge of God is disseminated? Well, that's the church. And so we, we see this with Paul. He, he goes there. He sees these, uh, just a handful of disciples. He recognizes that there's something incomplete in their understanding And so he instructs them. He teaches them. He tells them about, they they just knew about the ministry of John. They hadn't really heard so much about the Lord Jesus. Now, Apollos, we looked at him previously. He was, had a similar kind of a thing, but his was different because Apollos did understand about Jesus, 
but he had only received the baptism of John. These guys didn't even really know the gospel. And that's why it's, it, you know, the text makes it clear that Paul shared with them about the Lord Jesus. Then they were baptized in the name of Jesus. But, but this is our job. And this is what uh, a church should be. And when a person uh, walks into a, a gathered congregation, one of the things that should be very obvious to them is that, wow, um, they're talking about God. They're reading from the Bible. They're opening the Bible and telling us what the Bible says. We have a tremendous amount of biblical ignorance in uh, the culture today. My son was telling me about a, a friend who made a comment recently, and it was such a, an accurate statement. He was talking about kind of what's happening in the culture. Uh, I don't know if you've seen on the news recently or any of that, but you know, there, there's there's scripture being thrown around, you know, and uh, politicians are quoting the Bible, and then people are pushing back on that and accusing them of misapplication, and you know, there's all, all kinds of that type of stuff going on in the culture. And but but what this guy said, or the way he sort of assessed it, he said this. He said, "What we have right now is we have a biblically illiterate culture using the Bible to critique a biblically illiterate church." That is true. And that is a problem. But that's what God's outpost in the world is to be about. It's to be about instructing people, teaching them, and not just teaching, but also we see here um, allowing for an experience with God. Because Paul teaches them what they needed to know he, he corrects their uh, misunderstanding, uh, but then it says that he lays his hands on them, he prays for them, they're filled with the Spirit, they speak in tongues, and they prophesy. So, so the church is not just a lecture hall. It's not just a place where we disseminate information. It is a place as well where people can experience God where people realize that, uh, you know, God is, is real. I heard about him today. I heard things that I never knew. And not only that, I, I actually felt his presence. I had an experience with him. So that's the first thing. Secondly, the church as an outpost of God is to be a place where skeptics, unbelievers, and seekers can hear a reasonable presentation of the faith. Look at verses eight and nine. Um, now, Paul went into the synagogue and he spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened, this has happened already previously in other places, uh, some, some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude. He departed from them and withdrew the disciples. And this word, once again, we've looked at it previously, but reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So Paul reasoned, and we, and we talked about that before, but the church it, as, as an outpost of God is to be a place where skeptics, unbelievers, and seekers can hear a reasonable presentation of the faith. And we, and we might use the word here, apologetics. Uh, some of you know what that word means. 
apologetics is a word that describes um, defending the faith or, or giving answers for the faith. Uh, you know, th- there's a lot of things in the culture that challenge the biblical um, instruction or, or the, the biblical position. And so the church as an outpost of God is to be a place where even skeptics could come, where critics could come, where, where people who are uh, at the present time unbelievers and even seekers, but they could come and they could hear something that would challenge their presuppositions. They could hear something that would, that would really make them think. You know, Christians have been accused, and sometimes it's just um, the way it goes, but uh, you know, Christians have been accused of ch- checking their brain at the door. And, uh, you know, oh, yeah, those Christians, you know, they're just, you know, they're, they're uh, foolish and they're uh, uneducated and they're, uh, you know, they just believe all these superstitions and things. And, of course, that's, that's a false narrative. Um, but sometimes we kind of lend support to the false narrative because there are certainly um, you know times and places where you can hear people that are you know gi- giving a, a, maybe a presentation of the faith that isn't well reasoned it's not really uh, thought out it's not um, presented um, intelligently you know all you got to do is read the Bible and it becomes quite obvious that the, this is not a book about superstition. This is not a book full of myths. This is certainly not a book full of misinformation. When you read the Bible, you're like, "What? wow, the Bible says that? I, I find this all the time. People are absolutely shocked when they read the Bible or when they hear it being taught. They're like, wait a second. It, it sounded like what you were saying was like, like that was like a historical event. Yes, that's what we're saying. It was a historical event. Jesus lived in history. It's not a figment of somebody's imagination. He's not a myth. He's not a made-up deity. He lived in history, and we've got dates and times and places, and he died on a cross. He was sentenced by a Roman governor to death, and guess what? He rose again from the dead, and lots of people saw him resurrected, and there were eyewitnesses and you know, testimony and all that. And, and these are the kinds of things. Now, of course, we're living in a time, I think, where the assault against the faith is it, it's on a level that it hasn't been um, in my lifetime. It's never been like this. And I, I don't think in the, in the culture of the West, it's, it's ever been as intense as it is today. And there's the constant... Uh, questioning and criticizing, as I said a moment ago, a biblically illiterate culture using the Bible. And, and this is what you see uh, so often. John was telling me this morning, I hadn't seen the article yet, but apparently CNN um, put out an article today uh, that was actually very favorable toward the Bible, believe it or not. And, uh, but what it was is taking all of these passages that are so often uh, pulled out of their context and misapplied and calling upon biblical scholars to explain what the verse really means and why it doesn't really apply where it's, it's been applied. And um, so 
John read it. I didn't read it, but he said it's, it's actually very, very good. Uh, but, it's, but it's doing this very thing here. It's putting forth a defense. Now, again, we're looking at the church as an outpost of God. This is to be a place. Skeptics are welcome. Unbelievers are welcome. Seekers are welcome. Because what you find is that people latch on to the myths in the culture. We've got to be the people and our churches have to be the place where they can get the right information. But you know, if you go into a church and there's no emphasis on, on the Bible, if there's no preaching of God's word, if there's no teaching of God's word, and it's just a big emotional free-for-all, you know, I mean, somebody might get touched emotionally for a moment, but an emotional experience is not going to take you uh, from darkness to light, and that's the transition that needs to be made. So the church is to be a place where there's a, a clear, intelligent presentation of the truth. Um, thirdly, the church as an outpost of God is to be a place where miracles are witnessed. Look at verses 11 and 12. Now, God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the disciples left them, and the evil spirits, or the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. A place where miracles are witnessed. We, as much as we um, are committed to, like I just said a moment ago, that intelligent presentation of God's truth, um, we don't apologize for believing in miracles. You know, some people say, well, you know, the Bible would be believable if you just took the miracles out of it. Uh, no, it wouldn't. You took the miracles out of it, you wouldn't have anything left. But listen, the Christian faith is a faith that is based on the supernatural. It is based on the miraculous. God intervenes. A miracle is God's intervention into the natural processes. And, and that's, the Bible is full of that. And for us today, as an outpost of the kingdom, as, as people come through our doors, again, this should be a place where people sense the miraculous, where people uh, experience God's miraculous power upon their lives. I love the way Paul describes in, in his letter to the Corinthians when he's talking about um, the gift of prophecy happening in the church. And prophecy, of course, is speaking God's word. And in that context, it's speaking it like spontaneously, like God is you know, giving people words, like, like right then. He's giving people words um, regarding their lives and their situations and, you know, direction and, and all of that. But, but Paul says this, he says, if, if the unbeliever comes in and everybody's prophesying or they sense that, man, you know, let's just say an unbeliever comes in and all of a sudden somebody is saying something that is a literal description of their life. And suddenly they realize, wait a second, what's going on here? That, that person's talking to me. And Paul says this, when that happens, that person will be convicted and they will fall on their face and they will say, God is among you. And that is what we're talking about here. 
there were miraculous things that were happening. Now, granted, here we're told that um, it, these were unusual miracles. This, this wasn't the norm. Um, but it was miraculous. So these were unusual, but then you might say in, in a different way, there are more usual <laughs> kinds of miracles. But you know, I, I think, I was thinking about this the other day when I was praying for somebody. You know, when we pray for people, here's a question for all of us. When we pray for people, do we really believe that God hears our prayers? Do we really expect that we're asking God to do something and he's going to do it? Or do we just pray because like, well, you know, we're Christians and of course we pray, but probably nothing's going to happen because most of the time I pray, nothing really happens. Well, if nothing really happens when we pray, guess what? It's probably because we're praying without any faith. We're, we're not really believing what we're praying about. And we have to check our hearts. We have to watch out that we don't get into that place where we, it's easy to reduce everything to just the natural. And the supernatural is kind of freaky anyway. So there's a tendency at times to just say, whoa, you know, keep that. You know, that's kind of weird. Let's make sure none of that weird stuff is going on. But listen, uh, the Bible's full of all kinds of weird stuff. Uh, that's, that's, miracles are weird. They're like, well, that doesn't happen normally. <laughs> Never seen anything like that before. So this is, this is what uh, the church as an outpost of God is, is to look like. It's a place where there is an expectation of the supernatural. We gather together as God's people believing God is with us and God is gonna speak to us and God is gonna move among us and God is gonna touch people's lives. And we, I think in our current time, we need to recover this. Because as much as I like apologetics and as much as I like argumentation and contending for the faith and giving a good answer, as much as I'm into all of that, I realize that you know, there's a point where that breaks down. And there's a point where people need to have an encounter with God. And sometimes it can be just in that simple thing of, hey, let's pray right now. And let's ask God to work with the expectation that he will. And so there were miracles that were taking place. And then fourthly, the church as an outpost of God is to be a place where the devil is seen to be defeated. Where the devil is seen to be uh, just crushed. You know, the, the scripture talk, talks about um, the Lord will crush Satan under your feet shortly. You know, one of the things that crushes the devil is just when you see people who have come out from his uh, prison cell, people that have come out from the bondage to sin under the, the dominion of Satan, man, that, that just crushes the enemy. And we see it here in verses 13 through 20. Um, look, look what was happening there. So some, we, the story here of the uh, itinerant Jewish exorcist, um, they you know, call the name of Jesus over this uh, person who had evil spirits. Uh, we exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches uh, don't you love what the evil spirit says? 
uh, Jesus I know, Paul I knew, who, who the heck are you? And um, the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them. But verse 17 is where we see what happens. This became known both to all the Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified, and many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver, so the word of the Lord grew and mightily prevailed. But, but notice what it says in verse 18, and many who believed came confessing and telling their deeds. That's a testimony right there. And what are they telling? They're telling their story of how the power of, of the devil was broken in their lives. They're telling the story about the victory that Jesus has given to them. And we should be always hearing those kinds of stories because that, that's really what's happening. And we'll look at this as we wind down our, our study in Acts here. But, but later on, when Paul is describing to um, the king what Jesus commissioned him to do, he said that uh, the Lord said to him, I am sending you to deliver people from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God. And so this is, again, this is what we are to be seen. The church is an outpost uh, of the kingdom. This is a place where uh, the work of the devil is going to be seen to be defeated. And we're going to hear stories about uh, how people were deeply bound in sin and darkness and yet Jesus set them free. And I love those stories. I mean, testimonies to me are one of the most amazing things. They're a constant encouragement to my own faith because I hear stories and I think, okay, there is no explanation for this apart from God. This person makes zero sense if there is no God because they should not be here. Um, you know, kind of, kind of like that story in the Gospels, that demon-possessed Man, remember, he was living in the tombs. They couldn't uh, restrain him. He broke the chains and, you know, all of that. And then he has this encounter with Jesus, and Jesus delivers him from the demonic powers. And then it says that there he was, you know, he met Jesus naked and out of his mind. And then Jesus delivers him, and then it's, it describes him as he was clothed, and he was sitting calmly, and he was in his right mind. And, you know, sometimes that's what a testimony looks like. You're like, wow, you're clothed and you're calm and you're in your right mind. But you were a raving lunatic uh, before because of the, the bondage of sin in your life. But this is the power of the gospel. And this is what we see. And notice, um, I mean, we, we talked earlier about the influence of the occult in the city. 50,000 pieces of silver. You know, a piece of silver in, in this context was a day's wage. So 50,000, a day's wage, whatever a day's wage is, but multiply that by 50,000, uh, that's how much. I mean, these people, the, these were, you know, they, they were books or more accurately, they were scrolls, but they were information on the occult, how to get in touch with evil spirits, how to get power, how to, uh, you know, 
uh, do incantations. You know, that's what this was about. And they took it all and they put it in a big pile and they burned it. And they demonstrated right there that the devil was defeated. And now coming to the fifth and final point, and that'll take us into the verses that we didn't read. Um, but the, the church as God's, as God's outpost is a place where people are turned away from idols to worship and serve the true and the living God. Look at, look at verses 23 through 27. It says, about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. The way is, is a reference to uh, the church, the gospel ministry. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. This is how we got rich. Moreover, you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but throughout almost all of Asia, that whole province, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this our trade, or is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worships. So what, what is the accusation against Paul? He's turned many people away from following after these gods. And he's wrecking the economy. That's basically what they're saying. This, this guy's messing up our business. You know, at times in history when, when what we commonly refer to as revival, when revivals happen, when there's these great outpourings of God's spirit in these, these times in history, you know what happens? It's like all kinds of business that are rooted in vice, they, they're shut down. And they're shut down, why? Because they don't have any more customers. So people get saved. And that's what was happening here. The idol business was drying up, why? Because this fellow Paul, he's telling people that these aren't real gods. And they're believing him. And so the point here is that we see that what's going to happen in these, these outposts is that there's going to be real transformation. Lives are going to change. There's going to be stories, yes, of victory over the devil, but not just stories. There's going to be observable change. People are going to go from being idolaters. Now, lest you think that there's no idolatry in our current culture, think again. We are a culture of idolaters. That is the underpinning of our whole culture is idolatry. And it's all kinds of things, things that we probably would not even think of at times. Uh, obvious things are sex. Sex is a huge idol in our culture, massive idol. People worship at the altar of sex. They think that it's through this, you know, sexual liberation or whatever it is that they're going to find salvation. This is where they're going to find the real meaning of life. So they're, they're taking sex and they're basically putting it in the place of God. But it's not just sex. That's an easy target. 
But you know what it is too? It's materialism. It's materialism. It's the love of money. It's the desire for wealth. It's the, uh, the you know, just the worship of, of the comfortable life. And, and this is where we as Christians, we fall into idolatry many times. Because we're putting things, material things, or, or the things that material things can bring to us, the security and all that, we're putting that before the Lord. And we're determining what we're going to do or not do for God based upon how it impacts my possessions, how it impacts my comfort, how it impacts the things that I find my security and my fulfillment in. And what the gospel does is it breaks down those idols. And, and we go from worshiping at the altar of these various things to saying, you know what? Um, I'm going to worship the Lord. And that means different things for different people, depending on what the idol is. But in some cases, if, if the idol is my comfort, if the idol is, uh, you know, I, I've got this lifestyle that I have developed, and this is where my security is, then the deliverance from the idolatry is to say, you know what? This lifestyle is no longer my God. I'm going to serve the God, the living God. And even if that means that my lifestyle is going to be changed, even if it means I'm going to get uh, rooted up out of my comfort zone, uh, so be it. Or if it's, you know, if possessions or you know, materialism and whatever sort, or uh, money. You know, money's a huge God. As, as Paul would say, money, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's amazing if you look behind the scenes today at how much of the, the sin and the evil in the culture is driven by the love of money. It, it's, there's places where you wouldn't even necessarily make the connection, but then you find out like, well, actually, this is what's going on behind the scenes. This is what's happening. You look at the pornography industry. You look at the, you know, the drug uh, cartels. And how, how are those people millionaires or billionaires? Because they're selling drugs. And in the end, it's all about that. It's, it's about the money. So those are the idols. The idols, whatever they are in our <clears throat> current culture, those are the things that are cast down. People are turned away from the idols. Now, as you look at the, the story here, as we finish up, uh, you see that, you know, when you, when you leave the idols, the idolaters get mad. And the, these guys, this whole gathering is basically to say, we got to deal with this Paul guy because he's messed up our business. He's telling people that these aren't really gods. He's uh, affecting our, our uh, lifestyle, our economy, and they're dragging him into the they want to drag him in and they, they want to deal with him. And that's what happens. When you, when, you, when you turn away from the idol, those who are still cherishing the idol, they're going to they're be angry at you. They're going to attack you. And when you say that these are not gods, then you're going to get attacked as well. So, you know, the more we just proclaim God's word, tell people the truth about things, uh, we might not win a popularity contest if we're doing that. But in the end, you know, we're pleasing the Lord, and that, that's what we've got to do. So in closing, let me just 
quote from N.T. Wright really briefly here, just again regarding the church. He said, the church exists primarily for two closely correlated purposes, to worship God and to work for his kingdom in the world. That's what we're talking about, an outpost of God. That's what the church is, Uh, a colony of heaven. I love that picture. A colony of heaven in a country of death, a place where people can learn about God, a place where people can experience God, a place where skeptics can find out the the truth about God, a place where people can experience that there is something beyond the natural. There is a, a supernatural world a place where we can hear the stories of the defeat of the devil, a place where we can see lives transformed. What God did in Ephesus through Paul and Timothy and other believers amidst the materialism, the idolatry, the sexual impurity, and the occultism, uh, he can and may he do today those same things through us. You see, here's the mistake that we often make. We look at this happens with Christians, especially Christians, especially people who have been Christians for a long time. Um, the culture is changing like at a lightning pace, right? Where one day, where, you know, not that long ago, I mean, you could be a Christian and people think you're weird maybe, but, you know, that was as far as it went. But, you know, for, for some voices in the culture today, being a Christian, you're automatically the enemy, and then we see the proliferation of, of sin and evil. It's just overflowing in the culture. Here's the point. A lot of times we just think, oh no, what are we going to do? And we mistakenly think this is like it never happened before. Nobody's ever been in a, in a cultural context like we're in today. Wrong. This was the world. The world we are moving into is the world the apostles went into. That was their world. There were no churches in Ephesus. It was completely given over to Artemis. It was completely given over to immorality. It was completely given over to greed. It was completely given over to all of these things. There was no church. If the apostles would have had the mentality that some Christians have today, they would have just given up. Oh, forget it. What are we going to do? Everything's so bad. Guess what? That's why the gospel came, because everything's so bad. That's the solution to the problem. But if we don't see ourselves as as that, if we see ourselves as kind of like a fortress, we're just going to board this place up, and we're going to stay in here, and we're not going to let anybody in these doors that we don't approve of, then yes, we will die. But if we recognize, no, no, This is what the gospel was made for. The gospel was made for these days because the gospel is the good news that God loves sinners and intends to save them, even the sinners that we might not think he wants to save. That's another hang-up we sometimes get. You know, I'm glad I'm saved. Uh, Those people, no way. What's happened? Well, I just forgot how desperate my own condition was. But again, may the Lord 
do through us, his church, in Orange County, California. That's where we are. But, but beyond, may, may the Lord establish us in our thinking and in our, in our behavior as his people that we would understand we are an outpost of God. We are behind enemy lines and we're here for sabotage. We are here to undo the work of the devil in people's lives. And we do that by the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. So Lord, help us to have this uh, understanding. Lord, that this is indeed an outpost of heaven here on earth. And, and Lord, may we not forget that. May we even be refreshed in our understanding of that this very day. And, and Lord, that's, we want to recognize, Lord, that that's your... Um, Lord, you, you set that up. That's a picture that we see right here in the scriptures. And all of these things and many more, Lord, I know we just scratched the surface here, but uh, these things and, and those other components that are also part of this, Lord, may you by your spirit work these things into us collectively as a congregation and into our lives individually as your people, and into your church uh, collectively as, as your outpost in this county, in this state, across this nation, and around this world. We pray in Jesus' name.